this story of the first Christians from the book of Acts, and we're going to pick up this morning uh, at the beginning of Acts 3, which is where we left off last week. So I'm going to read Acts 3, verses 1 through 21, uh, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we we have already prayed together that ancient prayer that said that our hearts are often like a sea of restless waves and that we want to find our peace in you. And so, Father, we pray that we would uh, experience that, all of us in here, that we would experience it together and know it to be true, that we can find peace in you. Do that for those of us who heard that prayer and felt it deeply. Do it for those of us who weren't even paying attention, who don't even really know what that means. 
Father, meet us through your word. Give us the peace of Jesus again. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, one year, my older brother and I uh, got caught snooping around the house looking for uh, hidden Christmas presents. Uh, Our mom caught us doing this red-handed, and she had this really smart idea. Her response to catching us doing this was just to tell us exactly where the Christmas presents were. She said they're in the closet off the dining room underneath the stairs. And she told us this uh, from there on out every year. It became a regular thing. She said, you know, you, you could ruin the surprise of Christmas morning if you wanted to, but it's probably better if you just leave them alone. I think it was a really clever piece of applied psychology because she knew, of course, that it would stink for us to know beforehand what we were getting, and yet we couldn't get at any of that stuff and use it and play with it. It was infinitely better to know that there was this great unknown treasure out there waiting for us. Well, around the same time that this started, my family started another practice of letting my brother and I open one of those presents on Christmas Eve. I'm sure that this was probably a capitulation to our uh, incessant pleading more than it was a a desire to start some family tradition. Not that I cared either way how it started. I just doubled the anticipation and joy for me. And I can still remember what it felt like to get a taste You know, just a little piece of that bigger treasure that I knew was waiting in the closet off the dining room under the stairs. It was like it was a gift from the future, real and tangible and present, um, that was a taste of the greater thing that was coming. Pretty heady stuff for little boys. And this is precisely how Peter describes the meaning of the healing of the man in the story that we just read together. He says, it is a solid taste, real and tangible and beautiful, of the even greater healing and greater restoration that waits for us. It wasn't just about that guy. As amazing as it was for that guy, it's about you and me too. There is a day coming, Peter says, that will mark the restoration of all things. There's a day coming where this whole created order will be remade and we will be remade as people. We will become the people that we had been created to be. But before that day, it is possible for you and me to get a taste, real and tangible and beautiful, of the restoration that will one day come in full. Times of refreshing is what Peter calls it, from the presence of God himself. So let's dig more deeply into the story. Luke tells us that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So if you were here last week, you might remember that the very last thing that we looked at uh, was Luke's summary of the early days of the first Christians. They had cultivated habits, and these habits kept them aimed at the one that they loved. They kept them aimed uh, at their first love, Jesus. And the habits were teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And one of the things that Luke means by that fellowship was what we talked about, that they they shared with one another as best they could. They, They sold stuff off. They sold their possessions off so that if one of them had a need, they could just try their best to cover that need. 
Luke says they had glad and generous hearts, and they hadn't fallen into that by accident. They had cultivated that habit. And we didn't talk about this last week, um, but it's worth asking why. (laughs) You know, why did they do that? Why did they want to make that a part of their life from the very beginning? And I don't think that it's because they thought it was nice to help people who were in need or that it made them feel good. I mean, I'm sure that most times it, it, it did seem nice to them. I'm sure that most times it did feel really good to them. I just don't think those are the things that made them double down on this from the very start. And I can guarantee you those are not the things that kept them going when giving to people in need became hard. I think they did it because they took Jesus' words at face value. In, in Luke's gospel, which is the first piece, the companion piece to the book of Acts, maybe you remember what Jesus' very first words were in public. It's in Luke 4. It'd be great to read this afternoon. Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue and he stands up and he opens the book of Isaiah to a very specific place. And these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he begins his ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And I'm just saying that the first Christians really believe that. They really, really believe that about Jesus. They really, really believe that he had come to bring God's peaceable and gracious rule on this earth. And that part of the many, many things that happens when God's rule comes to this earth is that the poor get cared for. They really believe that. And so they did what they could with what they had to care for the poor among them, to care for those in need. I mean, they definitely prayed the prayer Jesus taught them, right? They prayed that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth, just like it is in heaven. They prayed that prayer, but they also rolled up their sleeves and they opened up their wallets and pocketbooks and they opened up their homes and their lives to embody that kingdom here on earth like it is in heaven. And church, when they did that, it was a taste. Real and tangible and beautiful of the full restoration that they knew was one day coming to them. It was a taste from the future in their present. It's the kind of thing that marked their lives. It was one of the habits they built in from the very beginning. And I don't want this to be taken for granted, so let me say it, that this should be one of our habits too as families, as individuals, if it's not already. We should be people who use what we have to care for those who are in need. It is a habit of our church, and I'm grateful for it. We use the things that we have to care for those in need when we support people like Linda Cotton, who works on the south side of Chicago, or Aaron McLean, who works in South Africa. We use what we have to care for those in need through the Deacons Fund, through our collections for Pulaski School and Breakthrough and Sunshine and World Relief. And we do this because our mothers and fathers in the faith taught us well that we need to be a people who use what we have to care for those who are in need. And so this is all really, really relevant because of what's about ready to happen to Peter and John strolling their way to the temple for prayer. 
Luke cuts away from them for a minute and he tells us about this man who had been disabled from birth, who had been carried every day of his life to the temple to ask alms of the people entering the temple. We find out in the next chapter that this guy is more than 40 years old. It had been a long life of dislocation and pain and shame for this man. In first century culture, a disability almost always meant that someone was also poor because they could not work, and that was certainly true for this man. Peter and John walk towards him, and he asks them for some alms. And then in verses 4 and 5, Luke makes a really, really big deal about what happens next. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And he said, look at us. And he directed his gaze at them. You probably know why that's remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable because nothing about these kind of moments has ever changed, not from that day to this. It's remarkable because we know there's a lot of shame and uncertainty and sometimes there's fear that often surrounds moments like these, being asked for money on the streets, asking for money on the streets. It's not a whole lot of looking at each other in the eye that happens in those moments. Usually a lot of furtive glancing and ignoring and quick jittery movements. But here, Luke wants us to know Everything stops. There is no shuffling. There is no shiftiness. There is just this deeply, deeply human interaction, and it is full of dignity. They regard one another. They see and are seen. There is nothing insulating the three of them from each other. They are all present and deeply human in that moment. I think it's beautiful. And it's instructive, isn't it, for people like us. If you read the Gospels, I mean any of them, you'll see that this is exactly how Jesus was with people all of the time. And here are his disciples following their teacher's lead. And those of us here this morning who follow Jesus in faith, I want you to know we have everything that we need to do the same thing in the same situations. So as it turns out, Peter and John, they don't have a shekel on them. (laughs) I, I have no silver and I have no gold, Peter says, but what I do have, I give to you. And it's very important that we stop for a minute and take a breath and think really clearly about what it is that Peter does have. Because something really remarkable is about to happen. It would be easy to lose sight of it. This is what Peter says. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. That's what Peter has. That's all that Peter has. He has Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He has Jesus. He has his vocation to be his witness in this world. He has the presence of the Spirit to be Jesus' witness in this world. That's what Peter has. It's the same thing that any of us here this morning who follow Jesus in faith have. That's what he's got. 
And it's important that we remember that because of this other thing that's about ready to flow out of what he has into that very remarkable moment. Because in that time and in that place, this command to stand up and walk heals this man instantly. It is amazing. And this guy doesn't even know that it's happened. He has no idea until Peter reaches out his hand to help him up. And then it becomes crystal clear. He's made strong. He walks. He leaps. He begins to praise God. He's made strong. And he, it's hard to imagine for us this, this utter joy and confusion and wonder and strangeness. All of those things that would have been swirling around in that moment for him, for Peter, for John, and soon for everybody else, they start to recognize it. Wait a minute. This is the guy who sits out by the beautiful gate asking for alms every day. He's more than 40 years old. How many times had they seen him there? How many times had they passed by him? And now this? Luke says they were utterly astounded. They, they started to all gather around under this portico. And in this flashback to Pentecost, Peter will not let a big crowd go to waste. So he starts talking to them. And he starts by asking this pretty cheeky question. Men of Israel, uh, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made this man walk? It was cheeky because these are obviously really easy questions to answer, and Peter knows it. Well, we're, we're in wondering over this because it's amazing. It's incredible. We've never seen anything like it before, and we're staring at you because we don't see anyone else here. You're the one that did it. And that's why this question is brilliant, too. It's smart because now he has them, and he begins by talking about God in the most formal and striking way that he can. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. That's what Peter has. That's all he's got. And so this miraculous healing takes a back seat for a moment so that Peter can talk about Jesus. And he begins by talking about what happened to Jesus a couple months before in that great city. He says, he, he was delivered over by you. You denied him in the presence of Pilate after he had made up his mind that he'd done nothing wrong. After Pilate made up his mind that he was going to let Jesus go. You, you wanted the murderer instead. You wanted Barabbas. And so he was freed. And you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. I mean, Peter is pointed and he's sharp. And it's painful. But it's also the best news that these people will ever hear. It's the best news we'll ever hear. Peter has opened his mouth to speak twice in this book, and both of the times he has talked about Jesus in the very same way, as the one who steps in and takes the hit for a guilty verdict that was not his. <laughs> Even Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. That's what Peter's saying. Even Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but he stepped in and he took the blame while the murderer walked free. And church, 
This is at the heart. It's at the very center of how the first Christians began to think about and talk about and write about the cross of Jesus. And for all that they will go on to write about and think about and talk about the cross of Jesus and what it means for people like us and what it means for the world, I want you to know it will never, ever, ever, ever mean less than this. That Jesus gives himself up in love so that people like you and me can walk free. It will never, ever mean less than guilty people can be forgiven. He takes the hit so that we can walk. That's who Jesus is, Peter is saying. And by faith in his name, this man that you see, this man that you know was made strong. It is Jesus who healed him. Trust me, it wasn't me. And then Peter says, look, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. This is an incredibly gracious thing to say. It's wildly gracious. And I don't think that he means that, that they didn't act with intention. I mean, they definitely acted with intention, especially their leaders. I think what he means is that they didn't really know who Jesus was. They didn't really believe that he was the Christ, the one that the prophets had spoken about. But now, knowing what they know, seeing what they've just seen, what are they going to think? What are they going to do? And Peter's invitation to them is crystal clear. (laughs) Repent and turn back. That your sins will be blotted out. They will be erased, obliterated, wiped away, forgotten forever because the innocent one stepped in and took the hit. And you know, Peter is saying all of this stuff while this guy is still clinging to him. This guy is still clinging to him and John. It's this beautiful picture, the evidence for anyone who has eyes to see that what Peter is telling them is absolutely true. That this man's healing was a taste, a real, tangible, beautiful taste of a fuller restoration that is coming through Jesus. This is what Jesus was talking about in the gospel lesson that Megan read for us this morning, Luke 7. It's this great story where the uh, disciples of John the Baptist tell him in prison, hey man, Jesus is doing this incredible stuff and John the Baptist wants to get to the bottom of it so he sends a couple of them back to Jesus to just ask, are you the one? (laughs) You know, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's going to restore the world? (laughs) And Jesus answers by saying, okay, you go tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. (laughs) Just tell him that. Jesus is not being coy, he is being crystal clear. Because those things are part of the things that The prophet said what happened when God returned to his people and started restoring the world. We heard some of it in Isaiah 35 in the Old Testament lesson. And church, that is at the heart of Jesus' miracles. That's at the heart of this miracle that's happened to this man, at the heart of his healing. The miracles are not parlor tricks. Every one of the miracles is about the restoration of something that's broken that shouldn't be. That's what the miracles are. 
It's restoring things that are broken that should have never been broken. The miracles are creating peace where there is chaos. And in that way, they are tastes, tokens, signs, real and tangible present signs of a future restoration that's coming. And that's why Peter says that it's not just the blotting out of our sins that comes to us when we have faith in Jesus. I mean, if that's all there was, it would be more than enough to elicit our faith and our wonder and our affection forever. But Peter says in verse 20 that there's more. Those times of refreshing from the presence of God himself. These are tangible, beautiful tokens, tangible, beautiful gifts that come from the future restoring of all things and land right here in our present life. I mean, church, this is what we believe, right? We, we believe that one day Jesus will come again and he will make the whole world new again. He will finish the project of restoration that his resurrection and ascension begun. This is what we believe. And do you know one of the things that's going to happen on that day? All of our relationships are going to be set at peace. They're going to be exactly what they were intended to be. And it's going to be amazing. But do you know what happens right now sometimes? (laughs) Right now, sometimes we are met in the present with shocking, open-handed forgiveness from someone that we've wronged. And it feels like a ton of bricks are coming up off our shoulder. And we feel like new people. That happens right now. Real, tangible, present. A taste of the future that we are heading toward. On the day that Jesus makes everything new again, I want you to know that the addictions that weigh you down, the addictions that pull on me and claw into me, those addictions, they're going to be gone. (laughs) But you know what can happen sometimes now in the present? We can feel their power weakening. And some days we can feel their control lessening and we can actually feel like free people again. That happens sometimes now in the present, real, tangible, true, beautiful. On the day when Jesus restores everything, no one is going to wonder where their next meal is coming from. No one's going to be hungry. That's for sure true, and you can write it down because that's how it will be. But you know what? Here in the present right now, usually through hard work and sacrifice, we can sometimes feed people around us who are hungry. And when we do that, and when we see it, we know in our bones for us and for them, this is a taste, a token, real, tangible, of the great feast that is coming for us. It's beautiful. It happens now. When Jesus comes to make everything new again, we are going to be fully known by God. And we will fully know him. It will be amazing. It's hard to imagine what that will be like. But do you know what sometimes happens here in the presence through the power of the Spirit? Sometimes we can feel him near to us. Sometimes we can feel his pleasure in knowing us. And people like us can rest in his inexplicable love and feel free. It happens right now, here, in the present. 
Times of refreshing, Peter says, real, tangible, beautiful, where we experience now a taste of the full thing that waits for us. This is what Jesus offers to people like you and me when we follow him in faith. May he make them increase. May he make us see them everywhere. So let's cling to him in faith or return to him if that's where we're at and watch him keep his promise. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this reminder that the last thing that you have given us is some kind of goofy pie in the sky and it's all, we just have to wait and cross our fingers. We thank you, Father, that you have given us through the power of your spirit tastes of the future that awaits us because of what Jesus has done. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to be people of faith who see, who believe, who cling tightly to Jesus and who become people who are are much better at smelling those moments and seeing those moments and celebrating those moments as they happen in our lives and in the lives of people around us. Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.